Hey, everybody. This is the Steg Drew Show, and I'm your host, Drew Stegmeyer. This show is new, evolving, and finding itself. We don't yet know what it will turn out to be, and that's exciting. I believe the world has a current civility deficit, and with this endeavor, I'll be exploring tough and taboo topics with compassion and civility so you can do the same with your friends, family, and coworkers. This episode is sponsored by Just Enough to Get Me in Trouble, a newsletter by Lyle McKenney, former guest on the podcast, The Real World Dos Equis Man. Lyle is a writer who will steal your heart and smack you in the face with it, and somehow you ask for more. New stories dropping every Saturday at 8.08 a.m. Pacific. Catch it at lyle.substack.com. Rachel, what is up? What is up? Nothing much. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy early birthday to this country that we live in. Um, <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> which I think is very fitting. So tell us about yourself. Give us a, a little bit of bio. Why should people know you? Who are you? Who am I? Why should people know me? Two very loaded questions. Um, my name is Rachel, as you said. Um, Rachel Reyes. I am, I don't know, I'm a native Angelino. It's where I currently reside. It's where I work. Um, it's where I came back to after years of living all over. Um, and I am a worker and community organizer. Um, I do worker organizing by day for money. <laughs> and um, on my free time, I do community organizing, uh, mostly electoral at the moment. That's where I've been focusing my like fun time. Um, and I'm a dog mom. So I don't know. I feel like I, it's not that I hate when people ask me that, but I never know where to go with that. So sure, <laughs> I'll leave it sure. And I say that deliberately vaguely because it lets people go where they think they could or should go. Because mm-hmm. uh, I could dive in and say, tell me what it means to be a community organizer, which I will ask you. Uh, <laughs> so you mentioned a community organizer on the electoral side. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Okay. What does that mean? Because I don't know. I don't know what that means. Like I didn't even know there's flavors to community organization oh yeah so there's flavors to all kinds of organizing and I think I was this is something my director always tells me that she's very happy uh, in some ways that Barack Obama was president because he made the term organizer like a household term and so people kind of understood what it meant to be an organizer I mean Barack Obama was also is also I guess a community organizer and so community organizing is simply empowering the people in your immediate community around a specific goal, a specific campaign. Um, And so when I say that I focus on electoral politics, it is because I simply organize with my community around candidates for elected office or propositions. Um, So literally just doing electoral work. Um, But you could also be a community organizer that focuses on transit justice, that focuses on racial justice. um, And then you're like the activities you do would surround that. But I focus currently on electoral politics because that's where my heart has taken me really the last couple of years. Okay. And so electoral politics, we're just going to get right into it here. Uh, (laughs) What are your politics? Tell us about your your politics, your beliefs. Yeah, I have a lot. 
Um, I guess overall, I would consider myself a socialist. Um, I would consider myself and like, I don't want to like get into the like specifics of that. Like, who do you follow? Who do you read? Like, that's boring to me. Um, So I guess I would say more accurately, I'm just anti-capitalist. Whatever means it takes to get there, I'm fine with, honestly, um, as long as it's like actually democratic. Um, But that's a big caveat, right? That's like not good for (laughs) Destruction, right? I wish it could be. So I'm. I think what I've learned um, during the pandemic, honestly, is that I'm not. I'm not like not violent. Like I'm not like a pacifist. Um, I. I don't think that I would go and burn shit down. But I'm not gonna tell other people not to if that's like the means by which we liberate ourselves, um, which I think is a, a larger conversation, right? Like, how do you achieve equity? I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, if I did, we wouldn't uh, be living in the world that we do. So so that's why I like to say that I'm anti-capitalist. Um, and I want to focus on bringing equity to queer people, women, femme people in general, children, um, the, like the climate, <laughs> everything. I don't know. My politics are for everyone. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think it's important because part of the shtick with the whole show is like, hey, it's possible to be friends with people with different beliefs. And mm. if you actually talk to people about their beliefs rather than bullshit on the news, most people are honestly pretty reasonable. I, I yeah. really, really believe that. Now you have to talk to people to get that, totally. right? Um, so you said this word equity, which I think is really important because a lot of people have this equity versus equality debate. And I would say mm. that they're, they're similar words, right? They're off by what, two letters, three letters? Yeah. <laughs> so where I mean th- there's a lot of places that that we could go with this but um where I would like to go if, if you're okay with it is what does it mean um to you to be anti-capitalist or or socialist what does it mean <sighs> So when I think about, let's just take socialism on its own. Um, To me, it's that everybody has equitable access to things that they need. So food, water, shelter, Um, but also within that, the ability to thrive, right? Because like, just because you can get a job doesn't mean that it's a good job or a well-paying job or a job that you enjoy. (laughs) Um, And so I truly believe, right, in like the bread and roses, quote unquote, mentality, which is like, we need the bare minimum just food, water, and shelter. But we also need to be able to be happy and thrive within our communities. Um, And to be anti-capitalist, it's just like, I don't believe in the system of capitalism. I think it's proven to have failed, right? Um, I live in Los Angeles. There are over 60,000 unhoused people and there are like 60 billionaires that live here. That's like, how can you have such a high concentration of wealth, which is a marker of capitalism, but then also have 60,000 unhoused people, which is also a marker of capitalism. Um, So to me, I think think it's like clearly a project that has failed. Um, I didn't consent to live under capitalism. It was just the system that like was there when I was born. Um, And so for me, I am choosing to spend my life trying to dismantle that. Um, And even if I can't do that, I am trying to dismantle the manifestations of capitalism that are creating like inequity and inequality in the world. Um, the people in Flint that don't have clean water, the people down the street from me at the VA that live on the sidewalk, even though they fought for our country, happy fucking Independence Day. Um, that's not right. So for me, that is why I choose to organize. Um, and I choose to do that 
that through electoral work, um, but also choose to organize workers because the, the places where you can organize to change your life, one of those places would be the workplace. So for me, it's really important that we're empowering people in the workplace to make their workplaces more, more equitable and more democratic where we can. Okay. So this capitalism thing, um, <laughs> this is an argument that, and okay, I, I, I need to make a little aside here because there is good faith and bad faith, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this one argument that, hey, capitalism is not working. And a common rebuttal to that argument I see is that it immediately assumes whoever said this is a socialist or is a communist. Mm -hmm. And if you read Marx, as far as I understand, when I've studied Marx, he would say that the Chinese Communist Party is using the wrong label. Like they are not implementing what he said. And that doesn't seem fair. That that doesn't seem right. Um, so I think what I'm trying to say is there are people who operate in bad faith who assume if you're anti-capitalist that you are communist, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Assuming, but there are also people who just don't get it. And I think that people who in good faith just don't get it have not been presented with an alternative, right? I would say we have mm -hmm. these stages. One stage that many people are at is the shit ain't working and I'm upset, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And we have a lot of people at that stage. Mm -hmm. And then there's maybe a smaller group of people that doesn't think we're at that stage or think, hey, this is working for me. Let's keep going mm -hmm. down the path we're going. And then there's yeah. another group of people that says, hey, this isn't working and I'm going to try something different, right? This thing mm -hmm. I call um, destructive criticism versus constructive criticism. So- that's a short story. That's a, that's a long way of saying like, what do you think is next? Um, or where would you like us to go? Well, well two separate questions. Right? Oh, okay. There's my dog. I, told you. <laughs> I think I hear, I think I hear an Amazon delivery person. Like I heard the skin. Okay. Um, so that's what she's barking at. Maybe it's done. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Holly. Should I just get her? <laughs> we can, we just keep Let's just keep rolling. People have okay. dogs. Surprise. <laughs> People have dogs. People have dogs. When they can't see who's outside, everyone's, you know, everyone's a cat. Um, okay, so what, what do I think is next? I honestly don't know. Um, I think in turn, I will just speak in terms of the U.S., obviously, because I am from the U.S. I'm not well-versed or well-versed enough in the politics of other countries to have an opinion on like the world at large, that would be impossible. So I will speak to uh, this place that I reside in. Um, I don't know. I, I think it, it depends. I think where the U.S. goes, I have no idea. It seems like voting rights um, are being stripped away, which is terrifying. It seems like um, the climate is, I mean, obviously we knew that it was changing, but I think it's actually now we're living, we're really living in the effects of climate change. If you look at what happened in the Pacific Northwest last week with a hundred plus Fahrenheit temperatures, um, there's fires happening already. I think like California, like we're already in a drought. Like we never truly got out of the drought, but we're already in a drought. Um, and so I don't know. I think I think what is next is a lot of climate catastrophe that we are not ready to deal with. Um, but what I think should happen, 
I think that we need to use, you know, this brief moment where people think like people think the pandemic is over (laughs) in the US. Like, I don't know why everyone assumes that a majority of people have been vaccinated. That's not the case. Um, But people are living their lives, you know, normally, whatever that means. I think that we have such a rare opportunity right now for people to demand more from their local governments. And I think that we should take that. Um, I think that workers need to look around and realize that those folks who were made to come back last summer or uh, required to keep working throughout the pandemic need to ask for more money, need to ask for more benefits. Um, and if they don't get either of those things, they need to stop working. Because I think it was very clear in the last year that the economy is those folks, right? Because we wouldn't have made people go back to work at the fucking Westfield last June if they weren't necessary to keeping the country going. Um, and so I think that like what ought to happen is that we use this moment um, as organizers and as worker organizers to work with workers, take their demands and write them into policy and get those policies passed. Um, And we need to stop giving the keys over to businesses to tell us where to build housing, who to hire, um, and who to actually allow to progress in society. Um, I think that we ought to use this moment to demand more. Um, And so that's what I'm trying to do. Um, And might it be futile? I have no idea. Right. Like maybe the whole country burns down (laughs) in one big wildfire. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm choosing to focus on like what we can do in this moment to move forward um, to create that equity that I was talking about, because that's really all that we can control. I don't know what's going to happen in Congress. Not really concerned about that because I can't really do anything to change uh, a congressperson's vote. But I can do stuff to change um, the lives of my neighbors. So that's what I'm going to try to do. So what are what are some of the things that are top of mind for you right now in terms of changes? So we um, here in LA are working to pass a policy known as Fair Work Week. And there are already Fair Work Week policies throughout the country um, in different places. Um, So we're working to pass one in LA. And that would basically give workers, uh, workers would be entitled to to their schedule two weeks in advance. Um, And that would make a massive difference in people's lives in terms of planning if you can go back to school, planning if you can take your kids to the doctors, if you yourself can go to the doctors. pre-pandemic scheduling was like top of mind for people in terms of that along with wages like really impact Mm -hmm. their daily lives um and then of course the pandemic happened so our organizing completely shifted from worrying about scheduling to worrying about health and safety um so top of mind right now as we transition out of this covid centric moment um because right now in la there's about five million people who are completely vaccinated against covid um which is a decent amount um so we are in this transition period. And I think that we should keep focusing or refocus rather back on Fair Work Week policy. I would like to see grocery store workers and other essential workers get a permanent raise of $5. We were able to implement a hazard pay for the last is it, three, four months. Um, and it's expiring next week here in LA. I would like to see that permanent. I would like to see all of our retail workers that were not considered essential, so they didn't get hazard pay, but were essential enough <laughs> to be forced back to work last summer and work throughout our spikes that we had in the holidays. I would like to see them get a raise. So I would like to see minimum wage raise. Um, and then also beyond that, we need to fix our housing crisis in Los Angeles. 
Um, so for me, those are some of the biggest changes that I think we need to fight for going forward. So what's funny with some of the stuff you mentioned is that I think there's, I don't know, I'm not going to arbitrarily make a, a class system, but there are these <laughs> classes of workers and what I would say, and I think this is fair to say, is that community movements and things like the civil rights movement were largely based on the premise that America is a good idea, but the mm-hmm. rights, benefits, and freedoms that Americans get are not distributed to everyone, right? Mm-hmm. And so with something like a fair work week or a $5 permanent wage increase or this hazard pay, there's a lot of folks, let's say knowledge workers, right? This Mm -hmm. class of workers has all that stuff Mm -hmm. already and may or may not see a need for it in legislation Mm -hmm. because they already have it, right? Right. Um, But there's a large group of people that don't have these things and the common advice to just get a better job, you idiot, (laughs) doesn't exactly work for them. So I guess the question is, how do you rectify that and or make it real, right? And and I think um, you could say there's this one view, which is pro-labor, another view, which is pro-business, and maybe a third view, which is if you're not pro-labor, you will not have a business because they will burn it down. (laughs) Right. So what do I say to those folks? I think this is a fair question. I think it's really similar to this like student debt debate that we're seeing, right? Like, well, I paid off my debt, so I shouldn't have to pay off yours, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like people don't understand that like, just because you had to toil so hard doesn't mean that everyone has to. And also you should not have either. Um, And so I think when met with folks who like work in an office, who work the same hours every single day, Monday to Friday, have health care, have a parking spot, there's air conditioning at their office, whatever. Um, I like to remind those folks that unless you're in a union, your job could turn around tomorrow and take all of that away. Your job could say, actually, now you have to work Wednesday to, I don't know, starting on Wednesday, you only get Monday and Tuesday off, you work the other days, you don't have the typical weekend off. They could do that. Like your job could do that if you're not in a union. Your job could decide that you no longer work 40 hours and you're actually only going to work 20. Mm -hmm. Um, Your job could decide to take away your health care. Like there's a lot of things that your job could decide to do Mm -hmm. because most states are right to work. Most private jobs are not union. Um, And so the second thing I would say is that while it's great that you have access to all of those things, everybody should also have access to those things. And because I can't organize a union in every single workplace, What I can do as a worker organizer is codify the rights that people have into policy. So I can't unionize every target worker in LA by myself. What I can do is push and pass policy at a city level that mandates things like two-week work schedules in advance. Um, We could pass a policy that says part-time workers are defined as having 25 to 30 hours a week and full-time workers are classified as 30 to 40. Like we could pass policies that lay out those right very clearly for folks we could pass a universal health care in the city of LA we could pass public banks we could pass all of these things that actually would improve the lives of all workers um not just sector specific workers we like to start with sector specific workers in local places because it does actually then when it becomes popular and people envy it it goes to other counties it becomes a statewide 
um, plan, hopefully. Um, so I think like it's great if folks already have access to what they believe are fair working conditions, but unless they're in a union, you're not entitled to them and your boss could end them all or just fire you if they wanted to, um, which is bad. So I would invite anyone that, you know, is comfortable with their working environment to join other workers and like fight for their rights as well and get them into policies because that only uplifts every workplace, right? Like, of course, I'm focusing on non-union retail and grocery in my job, but when we improve one workplace, we're working to improve them all and it uplifts it uplifts standards of everyone's workplace as it should. Okay. So for the folks who, I guess there's a rebuttal, which would be, mm-hmm. hey, some businesses can't afford that. And I think there's, this is where we get into a little bit of nuance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some businesses where the math just doesn't work out like hey if cost of labor goes above x you know we are no longer profitable and we're burning cash Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so they either have to cut staff and then they're understaffed or um they they can't sustain that Mm -hmm. there's another group of businesses that that's just not true for right Mm -hmm. for example um I would say most knowledge workers, again, um, anybody who has these things that you've mentioned, like a fair work week, just as part of their job, like um, most people that work for lap for, uh, on laptop, right? I would mm-hmm. say, right. I think that's a fairly fair assumption. Um, so what do you, what do you say to the people who say like, well, that would kill the businesses? Well, two things. My like petty response is then they shouldn't be in business. But my actual response is that there are ways to write legislation so that it only applies to retailers that can't afford it. So the hazard pay legislation that we pass um, in the city of LA does not apply to the corner shop that employs like the person that owns it and like their family. (laughs) Like it doesn't, it didn't apply to them because we know that it can be economically challenging, um, we use a metric of square footage. So if your business was a grocery or grocery retail business, um, which is a classification that is like decided by either the state or the federal government, I want to say it's a federal classification um, based off of square footage. And within that square footage, 10% of your square footage has to be dedicated to grocery, which is why Target was included in hazard pay legislation. you could use those same qualifications for things like defining what it means to be a part-time worker versus a full-time worker. Um, so there are ways to ensure that it is only applying to big box retailers mm-hmm. that are more likely to abuse their workers. Um, you could also say things like employers of 10 or more this apply this policy mm-hmm. will apply to. So again, you're carving out smaller businesses where it might not be feasible for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, there's like ways to write legislation so that it is targeting the actual root of the problem, which is like Walmart, Target, um, the 99 cent store, <laughs> like those kinds of businesses. Um, there's definitely ways to target the legislation. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think what's interesting about capitalism is that in the marketing, it's <laughs> We have this competition and competition is good, but all big businesses are monopolistic or oligopolistic anti-fucking competitive entities, right? Yes. Yeah. They don't want competition or a free market. They want to be the market. Right. And um, that's one of those things where you could say, oh, that's not a bug. That's a feature, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because we see it all the time, right? Google markets itself as small potatoes right because it's a monopoly right monopolies market themselves as small and small companies Mm -hmm. pretend they're monopolies right Mm -hmm. like hey we can be big too and um i think 
and I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on this. Are you familiar with um, Richard Wolf? I am, but I don't know if I'm that well-versed. I know who he is. <laughs> okay. that's, that's cool. Um, yeah, so I like some of his ideas. I think he, he does some good work, but um, I would say in some sense, he thinks about how we collectively organize ourselves and how we organize workers. And I don't want to put words in his mouth but I, I think what he advocates for is protecting workers, right? Like mm -hmm. maybe not that a job is a human right, mm -hmm. but if you have a job, it should at least pay for you to survive, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that mm -hmm. is a human right. Um, so how, how do we beat that, so to speak? How do, we, how do we get around that? Because I think it's an emergent phenomenon of capitalism. We see this trend time and time again, like a system exists to propagate itself and metastasize. So how, what do we do, right? I mean, I think if I understand what you're asking, like capitalism can only be su successful when there's people to exploit and when there is money to be made. I think the problem that we're seeing is that like people are literally dying, um, whether it's the pandemic or climate, um, like dozens of people died last week during the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and we're gonna see that happening, that's gonna keep happening. Um, but something that I was really kind of struck by was that folks who didn't have AC in places like Seattle went to hotels, but the hotel rooms were all like triple the price that they normally were. Um, price gouging, which is illegal, um, but it happens anyway. And things like that are going to keep happening. Um, and so capitalism will find a way to make money even while it's killing people. And so I think like the natural end to capitalism is when like literally there are no workers left because they've all fucking died because they don't have healthcare or because they died like when the country was on fire. Um, and I obviously don't want that to happen. So that is why I am focusing my efforts partially on organizing workers because like we can mitigate capitalism right now. Um, and my life outside of work is like dismantling capitalism period, end of story with everybody. Um, and so I think that like, I owe it to workers and like, I am a worker. I also spent six years in retail. I know what it's like. <laughs> I know exactly what right. it's like to be working in these very terrible abusive conditions. Um, and I don't want that to happen anymore. Um, and it shouldn't happen anymore. So I think the natural end to capitalism is we all fucking die. Um, but I think before we get there, we have to try very hard to mitigate the effects. Um, while also working simultaneously to just dismantle it all together. Okay. Yeah, so if I was understanding right, capitalism, I guess in the firmware, right, it is exploitative, period. Yeah. Um, and without that feature, doesn't work, right? It, it's mm. about value extraction. Yeah. So that's, um, you know, obviously not good, right? Th that leads us <laughs> on the trajectory that, that yeah, yeah. and um, 
Yeah, I, I just like, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit at a loss for words because I think where we're at now, there's this phrase called game A, game B. Mm-hmm. Uh, so game A would be finite, rivalrous, zero-sum dynamics. Game B is infinite, collaborative, positive-sum dynamics, right? That's the mm-hmm. only way we're going to survive. And mm-hmm. right now we're in game in between, right? Or we're shifting from game A to game in between. And so if we're not doing this value extraction, and I think I'm kind of skating around this question over and over, but um, I'm like, what's next? What's next? What's next? Um, <laughs> what, are, what can we do instead? Because I think the argument against um, giving workers more, right? Which mm-hmm. I think this is actually um, a somewhat sound argument the whole Adam Smith thing of, Hey, we'll increase (laughs) our productivity and then we'll all enjoy the fruits of our labors. And that's just not how it's gone. No. (laughs) And, um, you know, some people would say, well, if we raise the minimum wage, Mickey D's will fire everyone. Right. Right. Those people will be screwed. So what is your, what are your thoughts on, on that take? It's a bad take. McDonald's is going to do it anyway. McDonald's is going to find a way to fire its workforce, even if they don't give them a raise or healthcare or their managers stop sexually assaulting their employees, right? Like it's going to happen regardless um, because that's how capitalism works. It's like what we just said. In order to continue making maximum profits, they're going to find ways to do that. Um, so I think that even where, when we're not giving workers raises or giving them benefits, companies find ways to, to increase profits. Um, Chipotle, great example, this has been in the news recently, um, that Chipotle's price increases were due to the fact that they raised wages for their workers. When in actuality, they've been raising prices steadily over the last four years. And last year, they raised their CEO's pay by, I can't remember the figure, but it was millions of dollars. And it's like, so where is that price increase? Where should you actually place that blame? I don't think it's in the dinky, like, dollar raise you gave to people. It's like in the millions and millions of dollars you gave to the CEO. And when you look at CEO pay over the last couple of decades, that's been steadily rising, whereas the federal minimum wage has not raised at all. Um, so I think I just need to go get her. Give me one second. Okay. Holly. So I think that's a great point. And it's one I hadn't heard ever before. So I was like, oh, this shit's juicy, which is <laughs> a whether or not we advocate for worker rights, those at the low end are being exterminated. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's this classic, you know, managerial question of what if we train all our people and give mm-hmm. them all these perks and they leave right? And the flip side is, well, what if we don't and they stay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you touched on something I've been thinking about a lot. And again, I think this is something where you will misinterpret the data, right? Or they misunderstand how our system works, which is we assume what people buy is what they want and is what's good for them, mm-hmm. right? And the, the easy rebuttal to that is addicts. They're your most loyal, their most reliable customers, and they're getting horrible outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. So on the worker side, you could say, you know, 
where people choose to work is what's good for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's wrong, right? That's not true, which is, hey, yeah. many people are in situations where they're knowingly doing things that they absolutely hate, that don't enable them to thrive because mm-hmm. they feel trapped, like they don't have another option. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, that begs the question, what do we do instead? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like there's at this point, I was having this a similar conversation with my brother over the holidays mm-hmm. um, because we were talking about Target and Walmart um, and how they have just taken over small cities, big cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was talking about how it's kind of too, well, not kind of, it is too late to stop Walmart from coming in and closing down small businesses, pharmacies, markets, clothing stores. That's already happened. It's the appeal of a mega store. Um, and so your only options, if you live in smaller towns, is like you have to work at Walmart because all of the other variety of workplaces is gone. Right. And that lets Walmart dictate workplace environment culture because they're the only workplace. Right. Um, and so what do we do now in the situation where people can really only work at Walmart, Walmart doesn't hire full-time employees so that they don't have to give them health care. Their employees are on welfare because they can't survive on minimum wage and short or just tiny amount of hours that they get. Um, they're also on EBT. Like the, the, the public is financing Walmart's poor business practices. So in theory, we're already practicing socialism because we're already helping hundreds of thousands of workers pay their bills, feed their families, um, and survive. Not thrive, just survive. Mm-hmm. So we are giving Walmart money to exploit their workers. Um, and so what do we do with that? What do we do now? Um, the city of LA, you cannot build a superstore in the city. Um, there's only one Walmart in the city, like the super store. There's a tiny Walmart um, in Pacoima, but an actual like Walmart superstore that's like very common in many parts of the US. There's only one and that was built before this ordinance was passed. Um, So cities can do things like that or cities can demand that employers of X size provide benefits, fair work week, whatever the case is. Um, You have to legislate around it or you have to create so much public pressure that Walmart tries to do the right thing. We saw Target agree to raise the wage of all of its workers in the U.S. to $15 an hour in response to rising demand for hazard pay throughout the country. Mm-hmm. So Target didn't just decide to be nice and like give people more money. They were trying to trick us and squash their workers' demands for hazard pay by just raising minimum wage, which is good. Great. <laughs> like, we want that. We also want all of this other stuff. Um, and I think it's also just like trying to organize unions um, and trying to empower workers in that way to get together with their coworkers and demand more. Um, so there's a lot of strategies that we can employ at this moment to try and like get workers more and get not even more, just like what they deserve, like bare minimum. Um, a wage that will allow you to thrive. Um, so there's a lot of strategies that we can take. And I just think it depends on where folks think they would be most helpful. Um, but at the end of the day, like 
that change has to come from workers. Workers have to be the ones demanding it because at the end of the day, it's their labor that is being exploited. I don't work at Target. Mm -hmm. So what what Target does to his employees doesn't impact me directly um, to think about it selfishly, right? But at the end of the day, I understand that like the work environment that Target workers are in does directly impact me. Um, It impacts everyone's workplace in some way. So, So yeah, there's a lot of different ways that we should go um, and, you know, hopefully people are inspired to do one of those, <laughs> one of those things. So, yeah, let's let's talk about unions a little bit, because my take on unions is that um, unions exist to serve their members. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's not as simple as unions are good. Unions are bad or unions are powerful. Unions aren't right. A union is an organization that exists to serve its members and what I would call the spectrum or life cycle of a union is that workers are getting screwed, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually some worker speaks up, rouses the other workers, says, hey, we deserve more, we deserve better. Workers then organize, then they get what they need, right? But then they also get better at organizing. And eventually mm-hmm. at some point, the union itself begins exploiting, right? That doesn't always happen, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does. And there's a lot of backlash, for example, against police unions. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so the question I have is, what does a healthy union mean or healthy union look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I also will, would like to reframe it in that unions are a collection of workers. Like a, a union is not like a, a third party. Like a union is just a bunch of workers. Um, and that I think is kind of where all of this abuse kind of stems from is that people, workers don't understand that they are the union. If you want things to change within the union, you have to step up and do it. Um, You cannot rely on other people. Um, And that's why organizing is important. Um, But I, I like hear you. I refer to these unions as like corporate unions that have just gotten like so big that there's all of these paid staff members that like didn't, you know, work on the shop floor. and are doing more of like a service union model, which is like workers come come to someone in an office, tell them what's wrong, and then that person goes and deals with management instead of the workers leading that. Um, that noise, right? That adds noise, not signal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think a healthy union is one that is like actually truly run by workers. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this, obviously because of my job, um, but also when looking at Amazon workers. Um, There was that huge union vote um, recently that didn't pan out. They didn't have enough votes. Um, But then I was was on Twitter just kind of like searching hashtags about Amazon and I found out that there are like two worker-led unions. They're not recognized by the government, but there's two Amazon warehouses that are union that are organized together in their own plant um, and have made changes in their own workplace, um, which is really good, right? Like that's exactly what we want workers to do. The problem is that like those changes are only being implemented at those plants. They're not being extrapolated throughout the country, um, which is why I do think it is important to try and get union recognition, uh, recognition. Um, even though you don't need it because a union is just a group of workers. Um, I do think that it's beneficial in the long run and for everybody if you do get that recognition. Um, but I think a healthy union 
has a leadership pipeline. I think that older workers train um, younger workers into positions of leadership. I think that there should be turnover. Um, I don't think that like there should be union bosses. <laughs> I think that that breeds like, I, I think that unions like that can start to um, copy the abuses of power we see within capitalism um, and also in non-union workplaces. So I think a healthy union is one that forefronts the workers in every sense, has a leadership pipeline um, and regularly like meets collectively to reassess where they're at, um, whether it's with their contract, their health and safety, um, rates of pay, benefits. It's just healthy to meet um, and constantly um, reevaluate, you know, their work environment. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I'm chuckling a little because from my view, you haven't said anything that's like shocking or inflammatory. Um, it, it, it seems, <laughs> and um, I'm curious, what type of resistance do you usually meet mm -hmm. and in what form does it take? Well, a lot of workers, <laughs> hi. <laughs> um, a lot of workers in non-union workplaces are scared of losing their job because like I said earlier, most states are right to work or in California, um, we're like kinda right to work. So a lot of workers are scared of losing their job, which is very real. Um, we obviously don't live in a country that has universal health care. So if you lose your full-time job, you lose your health care um, and you lose your source of income to pay your bills. So that's the biggest hesitation I get from workers. Resistance we see from politicians regarding um, workplace policies are just things like, well, define what it means to work in retail or define what it means to work part-time. Um, why, you know, why is this only necessary for this workplace sector? Why don't we do this for everybody? Um, and the reason why, as I said earlier, the reason why you start with like one workplace um, sector, for instance, Fair Work Week starting within retail is because if you try to bite off too much at once, you're probably not gonna get anything and you need to start small in order to expand. Um, so a lot of times politicians will say, well, let's just open it up to everyone. This was something that city council, one city council member tried to do with hazard pay. Well, shouldn't everyone that's working get hazard pay? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but <laughs> like only certain workers were required to go in. Yes, if you had a work from home job during the pandemic, good for you, but it Wait, wasn't the same My job's thing. on Zoom that's not hazardous? <laughs> yeah. Even if I'm wearing a mask and you're on Zoom too? I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared, scared COVID's going to come through the microphone. <laughs> right. So it's a tactic that like they will use to try and get more reports, for instance. Well, let's do a, an analysis of how this is really going to impact the city and it's just like ways to stall because they don't want to outright say our friends at like the business corporation pack like don't want you to don't want us to do this um so there's a lot of weird stalling tactics right, right. and also as you said earlier like a lot of people not a lot of people i don't actually know how many people many people some people have the opinion that retail and service jobs are uh, low paying for a reason because they're low skilled. 
which isn't true. If you've worked a shift <laughs> in retail or service, you know that it's like the most difficult job you will ever have, in my opinion. Um, I spent six years in luxury retail, which isn't even big box retail. Um, and it was probably, I know for a fact, it will be the hardest six years of work I will ever have to do. Um, so I think that we conflate like low pay and no benefits to value. And that's just really not the case at all. Um, so I think that there's like pushback and hesitation from everywhere and a lot of it is cultural. Um, so I think a way that I try to mitigate that is by talking about my experience in retail as much as I can. Um, and by talking about like how I made it a career. And I think that retail can be a career and people treat it like a career in this country. There are people who have worked at Macy's, at Walmart, at McDonald's for their entire lives. That is their career. Mm -hmm. um, and they should be compensated the same way that they would be if they worked on Wall Street for their entire lives or in another similar sector that is paid ridiculously well um, and where you get more pay and more benefits um, as your seniority goes on. Um, so yeah, I, I think that this is all common sense. I think that all this legislation is common sense, um, but I think a lot of people don't see themselves as workers so or see their struggle in the workplace as similar to people who work in retail and service. And so we have this chasm when it doesn't need to exist. Okay, yeah. And as far as I know, to circle back to Amazon for a second, they don't like workers organizing. And no. as far as I understand, and I'll try to put this in the show notes, but it's, I guess I'd call it incentivized turnover, where mm -hmm. based on my understanding for warehouse workers and drivers, they like them to not be at the company more than three years. Mm -hmm. that's not true for software engineers, not even close. They want those engineers to stay there forever, right? right. And for these other folks, the real question, it, it, it becomes a philosophical question, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of are people lazy or are people hard workers, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think people are lazy, it's like, screw them, pay them zero, rah, <laughs> right? Yeah. And the other side of the coin is like, oh, the Wall Streeters deserve much more money because they're providing much more value. So I think, I think it's a fair jump or fair leap to make to say, however we map value to people's earnings is broken. Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, and I think what's very scary and very dangerous about a welfare state is that there's this idea of politics is all one question. How much do we owe each other, right? <laughs> and that's a gross oversimplification, but I like to use it. And I like to say like, okay, the right simplified is pick yourself up by your bootstraps. The left simplified is, hey, someone stole my boots, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> there's nothing for me to pick up here. Can I have another right. person, please? And um, I guess the, the, the question there is, um, you could say, where do we draw the line? Right. And, and basically, as a community organizer, um, there's a focus on raising the floor. Yeah. And then there's this future dystopian model of, hey, when we keep giving out welfare, we're going to put a ceiling on other people. Right. We're going to hold people back. And many people who are at the line will willingly become lazy. Right. And so yeah. this is something I like to talk about. I'll be talking about it a lot more, but um, how do we make a different way? How do we create a different way? And so 
when COVID started, I was working at a restaurant and it shut mm-hmm. down. And we, what we don't have is spectrum-based governance, right? So there were people who, when the restaurant got shut down, they began getting more money from the government than they were making, in some cases, working 50 hours a week. Yeah. Right. And I don't think anyone was saying the benefits were great. <laughs> right. It's like, hey, this thing right. is considered small is more than many people are making after busting their asses in a hard job. Um, and so what happened is, and I've, I've told this story a few times, but if folks are new to this, this podcast, um, there's some threshold, which was, Hey, if you're making less than 300 a week, the feds give you an additional 600. Yeah. When you hit 300 or get 301, you get zero. Yeah. Like that is fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. Right. They wouldn't cross the gap. They wouldn't cross the chasm. Mm-hmm. It's like, you've hit this threshold, you get zero. It's, it's not, Hey, we've decided that 900 a week is the minimum people need to live. So if you make 700, we'll give you 200. If you make 200, we'll give you 700. If you make 450, we'll give you 450. And so the question I have for you is this seems so painfully obvious. Like why does this not yet exist? Why don't we have something like for a minimum wage, right? Let's say we've decided the minimum wage is $15 mm-hmm. And employers, if their balance sheet allows it, are responsible for it. Otherwise, they're required, let's say, $8, and the government will give you another 7 per hour. Do you have any idea why we don't have what I'll call spectrum-based policy? It just seems like a better way to do policy. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure why, to be honest, because I agree with you. I think it makes sense. But I think the people writing the laws don't want to give people anything like they don't actually want to make up that difference um because the way that my friends in England were being paid um during the pandemic was the government I think it was the government was giving them 80 percent of their paycheck Mm -hmm. which like makes sense because then it would be in line with what you were already making at work not 100 Mm percent of what you're making but 80 percent and everyone was getting the same 80 percent um I think the point you make about like a lot of folks were making more on unemployment, like that's damning. And that is bad. Like it's actually bad that folks are getting paid so little and have access to subpar hours at their job that being on minimum wage or being on unemployment is giving them more money Mm -hmm. and is giving them a leg up. Like that's not, their problem. It's not workers' problems. That's a failing of our businesses. That is a failing of capitalism. Um, And that's what we need to fix. Like that is why it's important to raise the minimum wage. I think if you lose your job, your unemployment should be what you were making at that job until you get another job. Like it shouldn't be this like weird, like, oh, you get 450 max from the state of California if you made over a certain amount of money. Like, I will be honest, I was making $38 an hour at my last retail job. I was making a lot of money. Um, I lost money when I had to go on unemployment because they were not giving me the same amount of money. Um, And I lost my benefits. I had to enroll in Obamacare to like shout out Obamacare, but it was really expensive. Um, And when they took away the like beefed up unemployment and I was only making, making in quotes, $450 a week, 
like one week of that was just going to my healthcare. Like I literally was making $900 a month, but that's what people make on minimum wage (laughs) working part-time. It's ridiculous. Um, So I don't know why we don't have um, a system like you described. Other than that, our government hates us as workers and doesn't want to give us anything while at the same time is giving corporations welfare left and right. Like I was explaining earlier, we're paying for benefits for Walmart employees that are part-time because they cannot survive on the wages that Walmart gives them and the hours that Walmart gives them. That is not okay. I think um, that's a huge point because I, I want to interrupt yeah. there because yeah. a lot of the arguments I see are what ifs. Like, mm-hmm. well, if we did this, then things would crash or then things right. would burn. And what you're saying is, why are you saying if? We're doing it. <laughs> we're, yes, already doing we are, it. we're already doing it. Right. We are. We're already doing it. Um, so why don't we actually, instead of making it this like punishment and this negative thing, why don't we turn it on its head and make it a good thing? Like we we live in a society. We live in a society. We have neighbors. Like we ought to take care of each other. It doesn't make me work less hard if someone else is making money on unemployment, if someone else is making more money than me. Like it doesn't, as long as they're being taken care of, which at the end of the day, I think we have an obligation to ensure that our neighbors are taken care of, then that's what we should fight for. Um, And we need to start calling out, and by we, I mean actually mean our politicians, um, the squad, as it were. Uh, People like that, I think, need to very publicly call out corporations on their bullshit. And I think it doesn't only have to come from senators and congresspeople. I think like our city council members, I think our supervisors, locally need to also start making those connections for people because people are too busy working trying to survive to make those connections um and so that's where like education is a really big part of my organizing um is like showing people the ways in which the system is not working for them and is working for a specific amount a specific kind of person and this is the alternative to that this is what government can actually and should do for you Um, to improve your lives. Because for so long, our government has spent decades trying to actively make our lives worse so that other people can enrich themselves. And like, that is what it is. Um, Since Reagan, (laughs) that is what it is. Um, And I think that we need to just like, all come to a conclusion that like, trickle down didn't work. Um, And like, we need to start over, we need to do something differently. um, Because it didn't work. And people are suffering. And it is our job as neighbors to end that suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that note, um, I think it's really easy to get into phrases like the government or corporations mm-hmm. when the government is just a group of human beings, right? Maybe yes. they're lizard people. I don't know. But there's also <laughs> these corporations, right? And so something I'm curious about is you could say a corporation as an entity of organized human beings is not a good way of organizing human beings, right? Kind of like mm-hmm. a, a first principles type view, um, which I think is debatable, right? I also think it's kind of the best worst thing we have so far. What I'm more curious about is not so much are corporations good or evil, but at what point does a corporation become evil? Mm-hmm. Good question. Um... Well, okay. Before I answer the last question, what I do want to say about like governments just being groups of people. Yes. I think the government that we have now is a group of very rich people (laughs) and a group of uh, very 
certain kind of people who are writing laws based on their own life experiences to benefit themselves. And so I think that one of the one of the reasons why I am so passionate about electoral work and electoral politics is that we have to get different kinds of people into office. We need people who are saddled with student loan debt, with medical debt. We need people who have been unhoused. We need people who have never owned a car because they could never afford it. We need single parents. We need disabled people. Um, those are the kinds of people that need to be in office because you only legislate to your own experience and what you know. And so the more kinds of experiences that we can have in office, I think the better chance we have at creating a government that is equitable and actually representative of people. Um, that being said, I think the same is probably the same for corporations. I've never run a corporation, so I don't know. Um, but I think a lot of businesses that have boards have boards that look like our government, very old, very white, very male, able-bodied, rich. Um, and that is not great. Only, only centering those experiences in the workplace or in the government is gonna be bad for everyone but folks who look like that. Um, and so where does a corporation become evil? When you look at Uber and Lyft, I think are a great example. You can argue that they've always been evil, but they <laughs> deliberately ran themselves into debt with cheap rides to drive out competition. They started to lie and say that actually we're not a business, we're an app. People don't have to work for us, they don't work for us. They work for an app, so we're not a business, they're not employees. And then they fooled everyone in California with Prop 22 and said, unless you pass this, your rides are going to be more expensive. Prop 22 passed, which was so detrimental to workers, the drivers. But now the rides are what you would pay for a yellow cab and is what we should have been paying, frankly, for people to drive us around. Um, so they feigned ignorance, pretended they were not a business, drove out competition, destroyed people's lives who were their employees and who are their employees, um, and then jacked up prices for everyone else. And so now we're in a situation where like, it's hard to get a cab um, and everyone's prices are now raised <laughs> and workers are not getting the extra money either. Um, so yeah, Uber probably should have been charging me $40 every time I wanted to go across the city of Los Angeles. That is actually what it costs. Um, but instead of the driver now getting the extra $25 they're making off of that ride, Uber is just getting it instead. So the, the driver is still getting the same amount of money they were getting when that ride was only $15. But now Uber is making an extra $25 off of them. So I think when you start to center the business and the profit itself over the people that make you the profit, that's when you become evil. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, um, I think that's a pretty, pretty, I don't know. I'm inclined to say like, oh man, I like that definition, but also <laughs> I think that people may or may not understand it. And it's, and it's okay to have that as a general definition, as I'm thinking like that's not a clear threshold and maybe it isn't a clear threshold, right? Maybe yeah. the reality is, Hey, that threshold exists on a case by case basis. And I think um, it's where I want to go with the Uber example, because I just think this is fascinating, is you have this idea of public goods versus private goods. 
Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the government just, for lack of a better word, is generally incompetent, right? One reason yeah. why the DMV sucks is because the DMV is a monopoly. You don't like it? Too fucking bad. Where else are you going to go? <laughs> yeah, you have to get your license here. <laughs> what, I mean, what we're seeing now with digital nomads is people go to other nation states, right? Mm -hmm. Myself included. Um, so I think what happens is corporations try their damnedest to basically create a good that is public in the sense that their customer base is everyone, but they want to maintain private rights and private ownership, right? Yeah. And so where that gets really tricky is part of what makes Uber awesome is that it is accessible, right? Mm -hmm. um, most people have a smartphone. Most people can go on this single app and safely get transportation from point A to point B. That's fucking magic. That is great. Yeah. Right? What comes along with that <laughs> is all the other stuff you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious how that gets rectified, right? Government takeover of a business seems like the best way to make that business suck. It mm -hmm. go governments are not good at innovating, right? And government innovation is them, them paying companies to innovate, right? right. Um, at the same time, we need better public goods, right? And these better yeah. public goods come from the Ubers and Lyfts of the world and the Amazons, right? Like, as a customer, I fucking love Amazon. It is an amazing experience. And the fact that someone driving a car might have to pee in a bottle yeah. to get me a shampoo faster mm -hmm. that I ordered on my computer is insane, right? I, I mean, that that is absolutely insane. Um, and I'm literally just spitballing here. Like I just came up with this during the conversation. So yeah. I guess what I'm thinking is at some point, a corporation exists in a competitive landscape, right? And it tries its best to destroy the competition, right? It is competing, often competing in an oligopoly, right? A few large players, mm -hmm. um, which you could say service wise is much better than a bunch of small scattered ones, right? Mm -hmm. um, monopolies often provide decent service, right? They can, they can afford to half-ass it because they're the only game in town, you know, the DMV, right? Mm -hmm. So at what point um, does trust busting become good, right? Versus, um, I guess if we're going to surpass capitalism, um, what corporations are great at is innovating and making new things. And then at some point it goes south, mm -hmm. right? And often the people it goes south for aren't the customers, they're the workers, and so mm -hmm. I guess in some sense to, to put a bow on this conversation, we need to shift focus towards compensating the folks who make this innovation possible, right? And often that isn't the people at the C-suite. Well, there's, there's a lot of ways that I can like respond to that. Um, yeah, that was, that was a mouthful or two. <laughs> I think, okay, so I will just go in order of, of all of that. Um, I think the way that we combat Uber and Lyft um, is by reinvesting in public transit. Um, people wouldn't be, I'll speak for myself, I wouldn't need my car to do anything if it didn't take me three times as long on the bus. Um, if our buses were plentiful, if they ran according to schedule, if there were bus lanes throughout the entire city, then I actually wouldn't need to have a car. Like I could just use public transit. When I lived in London, I was on public transit all the time. That was how you got around the city. That's how you went to work, how you went out, how you did everything. It was convenient. Buses came every minute, literally every minute during rush hour in the morning and at night. There were 24 hour bus lines, 24 hour tubes. It was easy to get around that city. There's no reason why Los Angeles cannot do that other than a lack of political will. 
So I think we need to put people on city council that want to invest in public transit. It's better for the climate and it's better for our mental health because I don't know about you, I am sitting in traffic for an hour. I get a little bit annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's very stressful. Um, So I think that reinvesting in public transit helps, helps us out in a lot of ways. And that's how you get people out of cars. And that's how you get people out of Uber and Lyft. Um, That being said, I think that all of those workers need to continue to organize um, through existing worker collectives that are going on to demand that they are recognized as employees. Um, Because we might not be able to get rid of Uber and Lyft, but we might be able to improve the people who are working for them as drivers, improve their lives and their working conditions. I think we need to do that in tandem with investing in public transit. Um, which is a public good, as it should be. Um, and the good thing about public goods is that we can demand public oversight um, and we can actually demand change. Um, if we wanted to fix how annoying it is to go to the DMV <laughs> as a citizens um, of the US, we could actually like form a collective and a public oversight committee and demand that they change things if we, want, if we wanted to. Like, I don't see why we couldn't do that. Um, if there's will, then like do it. I don't have the desire to do that, (laughs) but I'm sure if people did, they could do that. You can't do that with private corporations. I can't demand the target do anything because they're a private corporation. Um, But that is why uh, public goods necessitate a public oversight. And that is why I will always choose to make everything a public utility (laughs) because when it's a private one, they abuse power, they abuse their workers and they abuse the environment. We're seeing that with utilities in LA. There's constantly fires and polluted air because of our public utilities. There are gas leaks all over because of private companies. Um, So that's what I'll say about that. When it comes to Amazon, yeah, it definitely doesn't feel great to know that my drivers are peeing in bottles. They have no lunch breaks. They are isolated in their jobs. and they're running up and down stairs every day. They're being timed constantly. Um, It's a hostile work environment and it's not safe. And so I think part of that is honestly, I I was reading this article about like, what can you do? Like, if you don't wanna use Amazon and like, how do you you just like not use it as much? Um, We just have to reevaluate our expectations. Like, actually I don't need to get that toothpaste overnight. Like I actually don't need that. (laughs) I could, just get in my car or walk down the street and like work a little harder to go pick up that toothpaste or whatever it is I need. I could schedule a time to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think though that those services are good for disabled people or older people or folks who can't otherwise you know, do their shopping on their own. But I also don't see why we can't create a public version of that um, where folks can, I don't know, log on to a government website and a government employee with benefits and health care and a union delivers them their goods. Um, Vons, which is a union grocery store, did have Vons employees doing grocery drop-offs if you ordered on their website. It was a Vons employee that delivered your food, but they decided to stop doing that and use gig workers instead, the way that Ralph's uses Instacart. So it's, it's all bad. And obviously Vons did that to save money, um, which is upsetting. So I think that like where, where possible, readjust <coughs> our expectations of services. 
because like there is no reason why I need to order things and have them delivered immediately other than like it's cool and convenient <laughs> like, right. but it's not necessary like you don't there's nothing you need within a one to two day mm-hmm. delivery like it's just you don't you know people survived for hundreds of years <laughs> without Amazon thousands even yeah <laughs> so okay to cap things off if you had a billboard to share one thing with the world what would you put on it uh start a union probably. start a union okay <laughs> and then uh where do you want to point folks right if it's your website or if it's a website that you want them to go to where should they go Ooh, um i i would really encourage folks wherever you live to find mutual aid groups in your area and find ways to plug in and help your neighbors. Because I think the only way that we get through things like the pandemic or any other future catastrophe is connecting with our neighbors and helping them through it. Um, If you have extra money to give, extra food, a shower, clothing, anything, um, find ways of giving it to people that need it. Um, So I would just encourage folks to look up local mutual aid efforts, every single city or neighborhood has one. And if yours doesn't start one, um, you know, it'll, it'll be utilized. And beyond that, figure out who's on your city council. (laughs) If you live in the U.S., figure out who is in your local governing bodies, because they are screwing you more than the president and Congress and the Senate. Um, Your daily life is more affected by your local government. So I would also encourage people lastly, to get involved with local politics. Um, It's difficult, it's frustrating, but it will change your life more than focusing on national politics will. Alrighty. Well, thanks for, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. Alrighty. This episode is sponsored by Just Enough to Get Me in Trouble, a newsletter by Lyle McKinney, former guest on the podcast, The Real World Dos Equis Man. Lyle is a writer who will steal your heart and smack you in the face with it, and somehow you ask for more. New stories dropping every Saturday at 8.08 a.m. Pacific. Catch it at lyle.substack.com. I hope you all enjoyed that. One quick thing in closing. Stegdrew.com slash juicy. Stegdrew, just like the show, dot com slash juicy. You can sign up for my weekly musings there on all things like we spoke about in this episode and other assorted weirdness. Just drop in your email, stegdrew.com slash juicy. Thank you.